A few years back, the number of data center-oriented overlays the market saw got to be, uh, from my point of view at least, kind of humorous. There was VXLAN, NVGRE, and STT, uh, all targeted mostly at helping with network virtualization and scale inside the data center. And the funny part was how similar these overlays all seemed to be. And from my point of view, why not just get behind one standard as an industry and we can all move ahead together? Okay, well then in February 2014, Geneve was announced, and some of us facepalmed. I mean, another overlay, really? What could possibly be the point of another overlay? Well, there was, and there is a point. Now, you might assume that VXLAN has kind of won the overlay war, but Geneve is still seeing active development, and there's some good reasons behind that that we're going to discuss today. And joining me today are several folks who were involved in Geneve, and they were kind enough to give up some of their time for this discussion and before we introduce those folks, I just wanted to say hello to uh, to Mr. Farrell. Greg, how's uh, the UK treating you this fine day? Uh, it's a sad, dreary, grey old day. The rain is falling out of the sky all day, and they, you can feel the touch of winter coming on as the chill goes down and the heating goes up. And uh, internally, I've been having a miserable day. I badly twisted my ankle last week. I don't know if, if I told you about that. Ooh. Ouch. And, uh, and now the bruising is stabilized and up into the top of my calf, and uh, I'm recovering. So not so much painkillers and much more sort of here now. Oh, you need a hug, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds terrible. I, I was just walking outside to my car. My foot went the wrong way, and I was, that's it. That's a weak sitting in a chair. Nothing. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And I'm with you on the, uh, the gray, rainy day, because I've got the exact same day here. Um, across the Atlantic in New Hampshire, uh, and yeah, it just it's just cold around here because of the uh, the no sun and rain falling and all of that. Well, enough of us commiserating about our sad sad <laughs> personal lives. Uh, let's introduce our guests and uh, and first up, uh, John Hudson. Would you introduce yourself to the Packet Pushers audience? Uh, yes, and, and I'd like to point out that I would love to experience seasons at some point. But yes, so uh, yeah, so my name is John Hudson. I'm in the office of the CTO over at Brocade. A principal engineer and also the futurist for the company, and I've uh, been involved in the IATF for a while now, and uh, very happy to be part of the, the Geneva project. So I, I got to park there for just a second. You said the futurist for the company. So does that, I mean, do you get a robe? Uh, what does that role involve? And a wand. <laughs> the, uh, the challenge is always is how far should the company look out and uh, you know you have you know engineering groups and product groups that may look two to three years out you might have a CTO office that's looking you know say five years out but there's always longer gestation technologies that if you're not keeping track of can catch people by surprise and so you know so one of my roles is to look in the, the kind of five to ten year range and you know look at things even as far out as uh, quantum computing, but right now actually the focus is machine learning, and you know, and basically you know, getting everyone ready for these technologies so that when they do come in, you know, everyone's actually ready to deal with them. Okay, that's neat. So it, it is a robo wand, and in fact, a crystal ball. Yes. 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 Okay. Also joining us today in the show is Dinesh Dutt. Dinesh, would you introduce yourself to folks? Good morning, everyone. My name is Dinesh Dutt. Uh, I'm the chief scientist at Cumulus Networks. Have a long uh, track record in. Uh, working on networks. I was at Cisco, where I was a Cisco fellow, worked on the Catalyst 6500, was a key architect on the Nexus 7000, 5000, co-author on the Trill and VXLAN drafts, and also on the Geneve draft now. Thank you for joining us, Dinesh, and also from VMware, Jesse Gross. Yeah, so I came into VMware actually through the Nicera acquisition a couple of years back. And actually, my day job was the Open to vSwitch project. And that actually led me into a bunch of different directions, 
primarily working with the, the kernel, the Linux kernel community. And that actually resulted in the SCT protocol, which is my, my first encapsulation protocol. So you can actually blame me for, for two of these when I was trying to work on the performance of tunneling. And so, you know, ultimately then came into Genev as well, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit when we want to do things right. Well, actually, why don't we do that? Let's just jump right into uh, Genev because, uh, is, is, it, is it Genev? Is that the preferred pronunciation? So, yeah, that, that's actually always the first question that comes up. Uh, so, <laughs> so I pronounce it Genev, but I think I'm the only person that does, at least for English speakers. So the, the history was, we, we named it Genev because it was supposed to be kind of a coming together and a meeting place in Geneva, Switzerland. And, and Genev is the original French pronunciation, but pretty much all the English speakers call it Genève. So whatever you like. Okay. <laughs> I'll probably stick with Genève. It's what, I, what I'm used to. Yeah. And, you know, the packet pushes, it's actually called packet the pushes. But we just say hmm. packet pushes the short. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesse, as, as you were reading, uh, you know, giving your intro, you you said there's at least two encapsulation protocols that are uh, that are your fault. You described STT and then uh, and then Geneve. How do you mean they were they were your fault? What was going through your mind here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, only because you know, people like you say you know they, they usually ask you know, why do you need more and more encapsulations. So I think if you look at it, if you have all the, the ones that people kind of commonly think about, you know, that are, have been deployed, so you have VXLAN, you have NVGRE, and STT, and I would consider all of these to be essentially the, the first generation of encapsulation protocols. And they, they all have, you know, they have some pros and cons compared to each other, but they, they all have pretty similar limitations. And the, the big limitation that we we're running into was the lack of extensibility and being able to add new things to the protocols as they evolve. And we've seen a ton of extensions that have come out as proposals to, to VXLAN and, and VGRE. And so the history was a couple of years back, you know, at VMware, we were looking at potentially doing some kind of you know, extensions, uh, you know, a longer term extension to, to VXLAN. So maybe like a VXLAN 2.0, if you want to call it that. And we, we wanted to avoid, you know, some of this you know, unnecessary duplication. And so we ended up talking to some of the other guys at Microsoft, and they're also actually looking at doing a NVGRE 2.0 with pretty much the exact same goals. And so we got together and, and tried to do something that would solve both of those issues. So it sounds like the first generation protocols have a, have a common set of attributes and therefore a common set of problems. And to resolve this, rather than everybody going on to the version 2.0 of their favorite encapsulation type, let's get our heads together and come up with something else that resolves all of these issues. And, you know, it's, and, and that was Geneve. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay, that's... It's a different spin on the story. Okay, that, that, yeah, that background is very helpful. Okay, so so let's look at, as I was digging around, looking at Geneve documentation and what's out there. I mean, if you look at the IETF project hierarchy, uh, Geneve is grouped in with NVO3. So maybe give us a little background there. What is NVO3 and how does Geneve fit into that framework? So, I mean, NVO3 is the, the network virtualization overlays group. So you know, they're trying to task with designing a standard for obviously building network virtualization solutions. And so there's a lot of different components over that, but obviously the data plane is the one that people are most familiar with. And so Geneva is one of the candidate protocols for the data plane, um, and it's going through that, that process right now. Okay, moving the conversation ahead then. Another question. Um, my understanding is that uh, Geneva is really the best parts of STT, NVGRE, and VXLAN. So let's dig into that. What are those parts, and uh, and why do they represent significant advantages? 
So if you look at VXLAN and, and NVGR in SCT, so VXLAN obviously has the advantage of being one of the, you know, probably the most widely deployed protocol. And that's because, you know, it's pretty simple. It's easy to implement. And it also runs very well over existing IP networks. So it uses a UTP header, so you get good load balancing over ECMP and hashing and all that kind of things. NVGRE provides you know, a lot of the same features as well, actually. But one of the things that is nice is you know, it's been around for a while. Uh, it, it's been pretty well adopted. And it gives some additional flexibility beyond what VXLAN has provided in terms of it gives a next protocol field to allow multiple types of encapsulation. And then SCT is probably the, the farthest away from the other two in terms of being a little bit more complicated and a little bit more software-oriented. But I think it's probably the, the genesis of having additional extensibility and flexibility. So first, it gives a, a tiny bit more header space compared to VXLAN and NVGRE. So 64 bits of context that can be used completely freely, um, as opposed to 24 bits for the other two. But the other one is that by virtue of it being focused on being very independent of hardware implementations, you can actually, in theory, keep on changing it and adding new things. So Genev is trying to balance both of those benefits of being relatively simple and easy to implement, but actually being able to extend it without needing to rev all the, the implementations. Let's back up to STT just for a second, because now I'm going back in my memory, so maybe I'm wrong here, but one of the things I remember about STT that was uh, significant about it was that the way the header worked, it would work well for TCP offload engines? Mm -hmm. That's right. Was that part of the equation? It, yeah, so it, it was designed to be able to work on pretty much any commodity NIC that was out there before they actually started supporting explicit hardware offloads. So you wouldn't need a, a specific VXLAN implementation in your NIC in order to get good performance. That's actually not one of the explicit goals of Schnev. Uh, the idea is that this is going to be kind of a, a long-term protocol, and so we expect that people implement hardware support for Genev, but it's that kind of, SCT was providing that original flexibility. And if I could add, I mean, one of the reasons why I got involved is, you know, a lot of people have this, um, you know, white tower assumption that a, a shop is a pure VMware shop or a pure Hyper-V shop or, you know, a pure whatever shop. And in my experience, that is phenomenally rare. And so, you know, if you were running a hypervisor that had better VXLAN support and you were also running a hypervisor that had better, you know, NVGRE support or maybe only NVGRE support, us asking those end users to support both of those encapsulation methods with a different tool set and a different troubleshooting methodology and so forth was, to me, rather obnoxious. And so... For me, it's about you know getting to a point where you know even if it's um, you know somewhat of a shared pain model where essentially you know both you know all groups have to do some work to get there, that essentially we come up with something that is you know easier for the end user even even if in some cases it's harder for us because asking people to do that was to me kind of ridiculous. The second side of it is that. I think a lot of these encapsulation methods were designed, you know, not necessarily with, you know, with the with the critical requirement, but with the idea that termination would be at a top of rack switch. And for me, I've honestly, I've, I've always kind of struggled, you know, with with the exception of certain use cases of, you know, and what, and what use cases people would generally be using that would terminate the top of rack switch. If you're doing multi-tenancy within a rack, I want to be ter terminating the hypervisor. And so having an encapsulation method that, you know, certainly could be accelerated with hardware, but can perform very well and is well suited to a software termination point 
is something else that I think is very important. Well, terminating on top of rack switch to me, from every, all the designs that I've uh, read about, it seems like it's another translation problem. Yes, you get end cap and decap at hardware speeds, but now you've got to translate that decapsulated packet into something that makes the traffic unique and identifies it thusly to the hypervisor, as opposed yep. to just handing it all the way off to the hypervisor and having it having done with it. Thank you, Ethan. Yes, totally agree. Yes, totally. You just go through unnatural contortions to make that kind of translation happen. One of the reasons why it started was the classic model. If it's networking, it has to be in hardware. It has to be done at the first drop of rack switch. And the second part of it was the problem that uh, Jesse mentioned earlier, which was for many people, if they wanted to go with VXLAN, they got really crappy performance from their NIC because they weren't getting hardware offloads. STT solved all of that by just hijacking the TCP encapsulation, uh, TCP protocol ID to trick the NICs. But since that could not be deployed in a wide world, in a, uh, uh, you know, how shall I say, in a regular outside world, people resorted to going to using VXLAN, but VXLAN had this problem. So what people ended up doing was saying like, oh, let's use VLAN. So we get the hardware offload and then have the top of rack switch at the VXLAN or in the case of bare metal support. But leaving out the bare metal for a second, the case of the uh, crappy performance where the f- top of rack switch was having to be involved became the raison d'etre for everything having to be done in the hardware and at the top of rack switch, which is like a short-sighted solution because now you've got to go through unnatural contortions to involve the top of rack whenever there's a new VM spinning up, new VNI coming up, etc. Yep, well said. It seems like we're getting much further. I mean, this this conversation, we'll, we'll bring it back to, to Geneva in a minute, but this is an interesting uh, rabbit hole to go down. I mean, it, it does seem like we're making tons of headway, you know, both in the Linux kernel and with uh, DPDK and uh, related solutions that are accelerating network throughput at the hypervisor anyway, that maybe this issue becomes moot in the not too distant future? It's astounding. I mean, for me, you know, if, if you were if you were someone that was using, you know, VMware in the early days, you know, you can probably remember what it was like before we got virtual extensions. You know, having multiple VMs on a host where the CPU didn't understand it had all sorts of challenges. And that sort of leap, it was so similar to me uh, that we saw with DPDK in that, you know, at least for, the, for our products, you know, not to take away any of the work that the engineers did, but the, the, the leap that we got from DPDK and the leap that we're, con, you know, the, the progress we're continuing to make because of DPDK, it's it's really, it's astounding to me. And it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting to see the progress moving as, as fast as it is. Hyper-V also supports VXLAN. So if you are really looking to have a marriage of Hyper-V and uh, VMware in your network or KVM, then VXLAN can be your common protocol. I mean, I in all my experience, both at Cisco and here at Cumulus, I have only seen run into VXLAN, where NVGRE was very popular, was mostly within a Microsoft itself, and that was the primary push. But VXLAN is now pretty much supported everywhere. Yeah, I mean, that's true. The majority of vendors have picked up on VXLAN. Juniper, of course, is notably different with their contrail. They're depending on MPLS and MPLS over GRE which suits their hardware platforms. And, you know, there are other people using IPSEC and SSL as overlay technologies. So it might be worth highlighting why we're talking about VXLAN and VGRE as appropriate from other overlay network technology that aren't necessarily directly relevant to Geneva. Well, I mean, actually, it's an interesting point because one of the challenges that I have with a lot of these situations is that, you know, if if I really want a multi-tenant environment, I'm making some assumptions that I can have two customers sharing hardware and I don't have to consult a legal expert. 
because there's no increased liability, you know. And what that says to me is that there has to be some level of encryption going on. Uh, and so, you know, you know, I think I think you bring up an interesting point in that, you know, considering how much progress we've made with these other, you know, both non-encrypted and encrypted tunneling technologies, you know, we, we should be looking at, you know, making sure we don't uh, reinvent the wheel and, and we use what we have where we can, because at some level, you know, a lot of people, even inside a data center, are going to need to be encrypting these tunnels. Yeah, I think that encryption is really important, right? Because we're talking about an overlay technology here. Geneva, NVGRE, STT, they're all data center or LAN-centric overlay protocols. And in the wide area network, which is probably going to be even more rapidly adopted than SDN in the data center, in my opinion, I think we've seen a good start with SDN in the data center, but it's going to be slow compared to software-defined WAN. In the WAN, we're still using other overlay protocols like IPSEC and SSL VPN and a range of proprietary, like a lot of the SD-WAN companies are choosing to use proprietary protocols for various enhancements. Is Geneva a step in that direction, or is it still very much focused just on the LAN opportunity inside the data center? You know, Geneva isn't necessarily the place to be doing that encryption, but I think anyone working on any encapsulation protocol needs to be doing everything they can to make sure that they're going to play well with and optimize as much as they can with an encrypted you know technology because you know as you say it's going to be required. But as far as you know, you know what the goals are for for Geneva as far as inside data center, outside data center. From my opinion, it'll be market driven. But you know, as I said, I'd love to hear your opinion, Jesse. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I actually, I totally agree. I, I think that encryption is going to be something that's incredibly important in the future, not just for, you know, on the WAN, but actually even within the data center. Um, yes. it, it's something that I, you know, it's going to happen anyways as a result of the, you know, NSA disclosures and, and that kind of thing. But I, I'm actually incredibly hopeful that network virtualization in particular is going to make this something that is just going to be much more painless and, and so easy that basically can be on by default. And so it's not even something that people have to think about. It just will be there. Yes, please. <laughs> My perspective is slightly different, which is, I mean, I buy, I agree with what Jesse and uh, John are saying, but I think that the move that I see the data center has really started is a, an interesting move. If you just take a step back, you saw a lot of stuff running in the network. Network was the center. Network was what could not fail. And when network could not fail, what they really meant was to say that the guard boxes could not fail. And a lot of reliability was put into boxes and to pull all the intelligence into the network. What the data center folks realized very quickly and have changed and have turned the trend around is to say, sorry, that's the wrong place to put all the intelligence. Let's put it where the applications are, because when you look at something like server virtualization, a VM coming and going away is something that the top of rack switch or the first top switch doesn't even know about. Why bother trying to inform them and have multiple moving pieces when I can be done completely at the hypervisor layer? So pushing away from the network into the hypervisor or to the server was the step that I saw. But I think the step is not going to end there. One of the advantages to me of VXLAN is it allows existing applications to work a particular way. But as I see progress happening, I see more and more getting into the application itself. So I suspect applications will start encrypting. While just the way today people talk about trying to say, like, hey, I want to 
use VXLAN at the top of rack switch because I want to get some better hardware offload, etc. In reality, I suspect over time, a lot of stuff will move into the application. So let me try and summarize that. You're sort of highlighting that the application can do the encryption at the payload level itself. And exactly. And the network doesn't see... So there's no point in the network at which decryption is viable or necessary unless the application is talking to another application. Now, let's talk about proxy servers very quickly there. Today, the network can transparently intercept traffic, especially unencrypted traffic, push it into a proxy server, completely rewrite it and lie yep. and send it back to the user, right? So today yep. I listen to um, Comcast, for example. When you go and look at video sites, Comcast puts a license avoidance, injects JavaScript into the HTTP stream to make you uh, click to say you're taking acceptance of responsibility for watching this video as illegal so Comcast isn't reliable. What they're effectively doing is hijacking that HTTP <laughs> Yes. So yep, the yep. second thing that happens is we now encrypt it into HTTPS. But what we now find is that vendors, networking vendors, are now promoting transparent interception of HTTPS, and they're yep. talking about putting you know, yes. open certificates into web browsers so that carriers can unpack encrypted traffic and then do things with it. So now this is a, there's a massive, massive push by the carriers to be able to do this because there is a, a post I read recently, which is there's a $24 billion marketplace where the carriers are able to track all of your activity across their backbones. That's not on the internet, that's the private and the public. And they then sell all of that data in a real-time market off, right? And what they're actually doing there is unpacking the HTTPS, decrypting the, the HTTPS sessions transparently, and then selling that data in real time. Not just the un and the unencrypted as well, of course, but both. So they don't want to lose that $24 billion worth of income in the secondary data sale market. I guess what you're saying there is that that's not a VXLAN problem. VXLAN can't solve that because the carriers are always going to get into the IETF corrupt the process and make sure that the encryption can be cracked. It's up to the applications to encrypt end-to-end. -end. Yes, and I'm saying that I think as applications take more responsibility and they become operating system functions, so you're not relying on the applications don't have to all do it all by themselves. It's not a networking function. It's an application layer function. Mm. I suspect that those things will become more, again, pushing things to the edge, right? scales better, allows you to deal with things better. Now, let's assume that we have a massive uh, RSA or whatever is the encryption technology used. Uh, everything is exposed, whereas an application can switch and use a different encryption algorithm much faster than some of these others can do. So I suspect mm -hmm. that intelligence being pushed to the application more and more will become more common over time. The challenge is, is that metadata is often much more valuable than payload. And so, in my opinion, it's not that Boolean. What you're going to need to see is you're going to need to see both. If we see anything in security, is that layers of encryption is what actually provides protection. And so, yeah, you're going to have yeah. your local provider doing some level of encryption on the network. That doesn't mean you don't want to then also encrypt, you know, uh, for what you worry about at the application. But it's those layers of encryption that are really yeah. going to provide some kind of safety. Even if they do that, then the question really becomes at each layer, what is it that you're going to encap, that you're going to protect, right? So if it's the application, it's protecting the payload. If you're doing it further down, you protect the metadata. So for example, HTTP will protect the metadata. Something above that will protect the payload itself. So yes, hmm. there will be layers depending on what it is that you want to protect, but everybody doesn't have to attempt to protect everything. Yeah, so I guess, you know, when we talk about metadata, so even in an encrypted HTTPS stream, you can still read the URL that you're trying to connect to, so the domain name, yep. 
We can yep. still take your time of day. We can take your yep. client head. You know, what is the client yep. sending? The, there's a whole bunch of data in the TLS header. So even though the payload's encrypted, there's still metadata that's available yep. to be, and carriers are going to take that and sell that data in the <laughs> open market, right? Yep. Um, and it's not just carriers we're worried about. I mean, the, the net has gotten significantly more acidic in the last couple of years than I think even the most pessimistic of us thought it would. And, you know, anyone sending clear text anything out on the open net should be expecting that it's copied 16 times and sold to 45 different people. And so if you don't want someone worrying about whether you like chocolate milk and they think it's evil, you need to be concerned about this stuff. Yep, agreed. So guys, let's flip the conversation back to Geneve Focus a little bit, and I'll segue it this way. We got talking about encryption and the various places you can do encryption and the types of data that need to be encrypted. Okay, well, we mentioned earlier uh, Geneve is extensible. In what way do we mean Geneve is extensible, and does encryption tie into that extensibility in some way, in the future possibly? Definitely, at least one one of the, the possibilities. I think there's a number of different ways you could use extensibility. So if you take a look at it's what's happening with VXLAN, there's a number of different reserve bits that are, are there. And there's been probably at least half a dozen different proposals on how to use them in different ways, either for encryption or, or for you know some kind of OAM or, or monitoring and offloads. I mean, it goes on and on. And a lot of these proposals have kind of stomp on the same bits. And so what Geneva Extensibility does is it says, okay, we know this is going to happen. We know that we can't predict everything that, that's you know, going to be needed in the future. And so it has a variable length header um, and it has a method for being able to say, okay, here's the type of extension that I want and this is what it does and, and so on. So en- encryption is definitely one of the things that you could add. You know, there's other security things as well. So a lot of times the hypervisor might have some really rich information about what's going on on the VM. It could use that to write fancier ACLs, you know, for example, based on logged in user or patch status, that kind of thing. Yep. And the other one that I think is really cool, that's not actually a security related extension, but I've heard some people proposing, particularly some of the guys working on P4, is a lot of, uh, it's an extensible uh, telemetry framework. And so you can tra- track what's going on in the underlay, um, you know, and get lots of information on, on that. And that was totally yeah. defined after Genev was, was defined as a protocol. So it shows that you can really do new things. Just So just to summarize that again, you said variable length header uh, for Genev, meaning you can put in a variety of different kinds of information there, assuming... Uh, and again, this isn't random. You can't just have someone walk in and slap something in there. You need to have a uh, a standard written saying, this is a specific extension I would like to Geneva to support. The variable length header gives us the flexibility to do that. And then you cited several examples of the sorts of information we could carry in there that might be interesting to uh, different processes that would be uh, doing a decap. It could read into that header or write things into that header uh, before sending a packet on its way. That's right. Yeah, it gives you kind of all the benefits that you might want out of defining a new protocol, but without actually having to define a new protocol and go through this pain over and over again. It kind of reminds me of TLVs that show up in a lot of different protocols. Yeah, it, yeah, it is TLVs, and that's basically the you know the most common and most flexible way that people have figured out how to do this. Yep. 
and also the key point i think of jenna from that perspective i mean i completely uh second what jesse said to me the biggest thing that i might see coming out of jenna will really be the telemetry aspects of it people using uh, the ability to say that i can put in certain pieces of information that can be then used by endpoints to actually look at uh, correlate for example figure out what the latency is and things like that might be interesting Okay, you you really you're get you said telemetry. I mean, you're getting back to something I heard both at the most recent ONUG conference and OPNFV instrumentation and the need for deeper instrumentation in the network. Yep, yep. I mean, right now, if everybody is getting to, if I can build networks the way I want, what is the piece that is missing? I mean, you know, for example, even with P4, I see that the biggest advantage of P4 at the end of the day. uh some people see it as uh, other things but for me at least i think the ability to add telemetry so that i can troubleshoot what's going on in my network uh depending on when certain events happen will be is an interesting aspect and i think a more practical pragmatic aspect than some of the other things that i've heard being talked about again the big challenge here being we virtualize the network with an overlay all of a sudden we have a uh, you know an abstraction between that virtual network and the physical network underneath so as where we've been used to instrumentation with say SNMP and querying a bunch of OID values to figure out what's going on now we're in a virtual network and don't have that direct connection how do we make that direct connection once again we're talking about a, a, a way to do this by uh, extending geneva headers but it's not just about getting what we had before it's also about seeing what we can get with the current knowledge we have i mean if you look at analytics exactly. if you even look at the machine learning stuff that i'm into now we're looking for very minute tells long long large data sets where we can look at very very long periods of time or very very complex situations and look for patterns anomalies you know kind of you know ghost in the shell sort of thing where you're essentially looking for very minor tells because if we want all this to always appear always on always there always available we're going to have to start getting predictive about how we repair things and that requires not just getting back to what we had before virtualization but getting beyond that and being able to look at mm. some very minor new details assuming that the underlay wants to share it with us but even in the that. absence of an underlay right you can use things like uh, buffer utilization which has nothing to do with geneva or with anything else you yep. still that's useful information so even in the absence of a network virtualization uh, quite a bit of telemetry additional telemetry is interesting I, i think from my point of view what we need to be thinking about ethan and your point is when you're running an overlay network you actually don't want to have deep intel information of what the physical network is doing underneath you want the physical network to operate in its own way what you want to be monitoring is the application performance and if the application performance is degraded start doing something to select a an alternate overlay path so for example in the software defined wan space for example we let the ip routing work out what paths where i go to the internet you know whether i'm using this path or you know whatever we don't define uh we don't need to know what the actual underlay looks like we don't poll the mpls interface to check that it's working or the the broadband interface what we do is monitor the flow of traffic in the overlay to know whether what's working right or wrong we don't care whether the physical network you know is it because i'm getting packet loss on this specific interface or something like that you can't tell in the overlay and in large networks it has no meaning there might be 20 hops between you and the other end you're not going to be able to monitor all 20 hops to establish which one of those 20 hops is failing and then provide telemetry on that so you need to be careful when you talk about overlay networking 
you know, such as VXLAN or, you know, a data center or the WAN or the campus as we're going to be doing, like Wi-Fi, to make sure you don't start thinking, oh, I need to know where the packets are going, because actually you don't. What you want to know is, is there loss in this path? If there is, I'll switch to an alternate path, because there's always more than one way to get somewhere. Yep. Well, yeah, and in each case, you're going to have, you know, each in each situation, the underlay or the overlay of the application may want to express that information in different ways to different layers. And you want to make sure you give them all the Legos they need to make those determinations, because you're right. You may not want to expose anything in detail, but you may want to be able to say, hey, this is bad, or hey, this sucks, or whatever, you know, whatever method you <laughs> want to choose. And if we don't yeah. give people those Legos, then they can't make those decisions. What's going on on the physical underlay underneath is one piece of uh, what's become a larger puzzle. I mean, Greg, as you were describing it, you're making the point here. You know, the network has become a big thing made up of a whole bunch of switches. And whereas we're used to thinking as network engineers in terms of a switch or a router, in fact, we're now dealing with the network and a virtual network that is uh, riding on top of it. And so, yeah, I, I get your point there. And uh, and that's a fair point. But there's well, and still... the point is that the underlay network might change. Today it's MPLS. Yeah. But MPLS is yep. only useful when you've got a network that has multiple tenants. The long-term future of carriers is just all internet. There's no private and public. So you don't need MPLS to run a high bandwidth carrier backbone in the future. So... You know, I, I we think won't there's use some MPLS. carriers that would say you're uh, uh, maybe thinking a little, <laughs> little too far ahead, but... Well, I'm, I'm just throwing it out, right? The, the, yep. You can predict an end to MPLS and put a case together, which is reasonably logical. Now, carriers are going to do something else to try and boost their revenues, uh, but that's a different thing. Uh, but, you know, my point is today it's MPLS with MPLS TE. Tomorrow it might be MPLS FRR. Tomorrow it might be MPLS, you know, any one of the 30 other IETF extensions that are trying to make MPLS more stupid than it is now. Um <laughs> Are you going to produce telemetry for all of those and then integrate every single possible overlay with that underlay technology? That doesn't uh, seem yes. to scale yeah, very, very well. Difficult. Well, you're going to have a few people drooling, uh, Greg, by <laughs> all of those statements. Like, oh my God, the amount of stuff I can actually do still. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think to Greg's point to kind of extend it a little bit, right? I think one of the things we have realized and I think maybe to some extent we are continuing to repeat that mistake uh, in the telemetry space is it's interesting to gather all kinds of uh, data. And uh, as John was talking about, to look for tells, certain patterns to figure out if something is going on. But one of the things I have realized within my time with networking is the following. A rising tide rises all ships. If bandwidth is cheap and you can throw it at the problem, forget about things like QoS and optimization. A good enough network with enough bandwidth is far superior because it is simple and fails in simple ways than an extremely complex, over-engineered, but very optimized network. Yep. Mm. Bandwidth is the best QoS. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I put in, in Catalyst 6500, I threw in as many tricks as possible. Microflow policing, macroflow policing, count here, count there. Yeah, because you were How living inside people? of a box that was constantly oversubscribed. Yeah, just by design. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, it's another thing, right? I mean, at that time, given that time, I mean, that was the fad. I was young, foolish. And uh, so I thought that that was, you know, the throwing features and complexity at a problem is actually good. And I just want to caution that the same thing we don't repeat with telemetry and everything else. It's useful to count, but we have to be careful that we don't go overboard again in the pursuit of data, because sometimes 
Not interesting is not interesting. Simple is better well, than complex. The, the, there's a subtext here, right? That That is, it's not just monitoring numbers and gathering time. We use a big data analytics algorithm because, well, all this numbers that we're getting. Okay, it's it's not just that you've got a bunch of stuff that you're trying to make a decision about. It's that you're monitoring the right sort of numbers, and then you're interpreting them in a meaningful way. I know one of the problems, yep. just if you go back to old school, SNMP, OIDs, holy crap, you couldn't tell what half of these numbers were even supposed to be telling you, and you're trying to make some sense out of them. It's It, it was a pointless exercise uh, in many cases, and you ended up sticking with the MIB2 basics by and large. In big, in some of the big data analytics and even the machine learning sides, we're not just looking at network telemetry anymore. We're looking at social media behavior. We're looking at weather data. We're looking mm. at social trends. Uh, you know, I mean, I had this situation many years ago where we thought we were having an outage in the middle of, of Christmas Day, and we spent all this time trying to figure it out. And it wasn't until one of the engineers looked at the graph from the previous year that we realized it was all the people on the East Coast having dinner. And that's what was causing the dip. It was at three o'clock. Everyone's, you know, mom and dad at six o'clock on the East Coast yelling, hey, put down that game station. We're going to have dinner. That's what was causing our decrease in usage. And so you have to start looking at, you know, not just that network telemetry, but also all the other factors that influence the users of that data. Okay, guys, Geneva as a standard, where are we at? Because when I checked, it was still draft and it didn't seem like the ball had moved forward you know, too far from February 2014, and here we are recording this in November 2015. Is it headed towards being a standard? That's more of an, uh, a standards thing than a Geneva thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, these things just never happen as, as fast as you want. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I think we were trying very hard for in MBO3 uh, in the early days was, you know, one encapsulation method to rule them all. And I think that there's been some more pragmatic views that perhaps you know, uh, getting everyone to consolidate on on two is probably more realistic. And so, what you're what we're going through now is is all the fits and turns to essentially, you know, get everyone to you know to agree on 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 those two. And so, it's there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of process that goes on. But it's it's a very very active topic and it's a very very actively you know fought sort of discussion. But also the other part of it is from a standards perspective, even even if it goes towards a standard, I think people are now slowly moving from the VLAN world into the VXLAN world. Another shift is going to take a little longer to happen. So I think one of the things that Genev has going for it is maybe it is okay to go a little slower. I mean, we really push the VXLAN draft through as quickly as possible. I mean, all the machinations we had to do, I mean, VXLAN didn't even come out of the NBO3 simply because we didn't want to wait that long. People needed to keep proceeding. With Genev, we have got a little more time to make it go through, uh, you know, the usual IETF process, so to speak. That's why VXLAN doesn't have any telemetry. All you've got is a header. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's not a flexible header. The reason it doesn't have a flexible header, as I understand it, is a topic we'll come to in a minute, which is silicon, right? Um, yeah. They didn't want to have a flexible header because that makes silicon hard. So they just yep. went with something you could ram through the, yep. you know, and get some sort of agreement on in the very short term. And that's why we ended up with VXLAN. I mean, it was a very precise problem it was trying to solve. I need, a, I don't like 12 bit VLANs. Mm. That was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was there at the beginning. I was one of the guys who did the VXLAN header. So we were like, throw 24 bits because everybody has 24 because 12 times 12 plus 12 is 24. And John is aware of some of this because yep. he and I were uh, collaborating on the Trill side of things. When I was on the, I had my Trill hat as well as my VXLAN hat on inside Cisco. 
So we wanted to kind of standardize and such that we didn't have to keep reinventing gateways that kept switching 20 bits to 24 bits to 32 bits to 48 bits. <laughs> so I think from, yeah, it, it, I mean, that's part of the encapsulation mess, right? I mean, and we haven't, we'll, let's even end up with Genev. We haven't talked about, I mean, all of you, I'm sure on the Twitter saw Ivan's uh, blog a few days ago. Okay, we are done with the data encapsulation wars. Can we now please end the control plane encapsulation wars? So Genev is still, so we can kind of take it a little slowly from that perspective and let things work itself through. At least that's my perspective. Let's let's look at it a different way then. I mean, whether or not the standard is there and how long it's going to take, okay, we're not in a rush, fair enough. I mean, are we seeing market adoption? Because someone from the outside perspective could look at this and go, I thought VXLAN had won. You know, we see VTEPs now in hardware. We see, you know, lots of documented use cases for VXLAN, and that's what everybody seems to talk about. Uh, I mean, we've established on the show why that it's not as simple as that. But uh, is the market interested in Genev? I mean, are hardware vendors, are they looking at silicon and saying they care about this? I mean, that's another conversation we kind of had. We think we want to just keep doing it in the hypervisor. Doesn't that make the most sense? But uh, who, who else, who's picking up on Genev and uh, putting some development effort behind it? <laughs> Look at the author list, right? I mean, you've got Broadcom on it. You've got, uh, I'm sure other vendors are, silicon vendors are all doing it. P4, all the barefoot, explained guys say like, oh, no big deal. Another end cap and TLV, hey, you're actually speaking to our strength. Yep. So I think silicon vendors uh, will support Genev in the end. Whether they'll support all the uh, permutations and combinations is a different thing. Most people are looking at doing simple stuff. And in my discussion with Martin Casado a while back when Genev first came out and I was uh, introduced to it, so to speak, about wanting to do something with it, uh, Martin's perspective was like, look, if we are going to have bare metal and do things with bare metal, maybe we are going to have very simple stuff at least to start with, and it's all going to be VXLAN. Genev is going to be used when we have real soft nodes. So let's not do anything more in the merchant silicon other than having them parse past the Genev headers. Yeah. Is, yes. it, is it hard in silicon to support a variable length header or, or not a big deal? Big deal. Okay. It's I, difficult. It, it, clearly, I think in any situation, it, it's easier you know, to do something that's simple and, and fixed compared to, to variable length. And I, I would definitely consider you know, VXLAN for sure is one, the, the first generation that, you know, of the, the NCAPs. But we actually have been talking to quite a few different you know, silicon vendors and software vendors and all, pretty much everyone that's out there. And I've actually been really tremendously surprised at how interested and willing people are to actually implement not only you know the Genève base header, but even you know some of the more complex things. Um, just because you know the, the accepted wisdom, particularly in the IETF, um, has always been that you can't do anything that's variable length. And and honestly, you know, just from what I've been seeing from, from talking to the, these folks. Um, you know, people really want and are, are trying very hard to, to push the envelope on that. So I think there's a lot of implementations that are coming, and a lot of them have already been announced as well. As Dinesh, you know, hinted to a minute ago, you know, some vendors like you know Barefoot and so forth are seeing this as you know, hey, this is an opportunity to show what we can do. And so what you might end up seeing, depending on how the market reacts, is you might end up seeing this become a differentiator between the software vendors and the you know some of the newer um, you know the newer chip uh, folks, you know. People 
and so forth, where they're saying, look, you know, we can offer you the speed and the nimbleness. And, you know, this is why you should be looking at us. And so it might end up becoming an interesting, you know, decision point for folks. Now, Jesse, you're tied in with OVS as well. I mean, is uh, Genev part of that? Yeah, yeah. So OVS is definitely already supported pretty well in OVS. And I think actually perhaps even more interesting is there's the OVN project, which is um, a, a higher level um, you know, virtual networking controller that's getting a lot of excitement, particularly within the, the OpenStack community. Um, and OVN is actually using Genev as its uh, primary encapsulation format. And it's starting to take advantage of some of the extensions already. So I think that that's really awesome to see as an open source user um, you know, that's, that's pushing ahead forward with Genev. Does that mean Genev has got good Linux support? So the Linux drivers for VXLAN have been less than um, great, shall we say? <laughs> In what way? In what way? <laughs> From what I heard. Um, and so it's take, you know, some of the VXLAN adoption in, say, getting high-speed NICs from, say, Mox or SolarFlare, you know, Mellanox or SolarFlare has been slow, ah. you know, uh, where you can get accelerated overlay performance at the edge or whether you want to, you know, like uh, Cisco UCS, for example, has very high-performance VXLAN because they have their programmable network adapter, which is the NIC, the, basically the UCS is one big fancy NIC. So they had really good VXLAN support, but other people don't. Those things will drive adoption. So does that mean Geneva in terms of OpenStack and OVN and the Linux kernel, is it going to have good support for these? Yeah, so I, mean, I think Geneva is certainly supported very well with the, the core within the core of OVS and Linux. You know, obviously the, the driver support is something that is ultimately going to depend on, on the manufacturers. But uh, I think probably it's going to be easier the second time around. You know, <laughs> VXLAN for sure you know, broke a little bit of the barriers of, of handling IP encapsulation. And so it's much easier for the driver writers to take that base and, and do something that's you know, high quality. Agreed. And, and this will be market-driven to a large degree, right? I mean, essentially, as, as you know, more and more people, you know, take advantage of, 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 you know, these different software projects, it's going to be a lot easier for some of these, you know, NIC vendors to essentially dedicate the resources to provide better support. Yeah. But again, I think VXLAN is the first thing that, I mean, people are just getting into VXLAN. My uh, prediction is that I doubt if people will jump onto another one right away. Mm. I think mm. VXLAN will take hold and will stay for a while, and then we, people will start complaining about how fixed it is, and then they'll shift to something else in time. Or maybe the technology would have arrived that IPv6 is everywhere, and you don't need any of this stuff. I, I actually think, well, I think up to a point, I actually don't care about the overlay protocol anymore itself. So whether it's VXLAN, Geneva, IPsec, SSL, GRE, MP, whatever it is, I actually don't care, right? Actually, yeah. For all I care, it can be VXLAN, VLAN tags. Let's go back to just having 4,096 VLANs because that's an overlay network in itself. I think the key here is about the control protocol, about how we configure the... VXLAN, the, the overlay pipes and the where they egress. So my biggest problem today building a private cloud isn't configuring OpenStack or vRealize to support an overlay network and communicate within itself. The biggest problem I have is communicating a VXLAN gateway that terminates. And because I've got 5,000 VMs or 20,000 VMs behind the overlay network, I actually need to build a 160 gig Ethernet termination point for VXLAN gateways, right? I just want to point out just how impossibly hard that is today. 
the few you are absolutely right greg but also from the same perspective i think if i push even further why even go to vlans it's all layer 2 if we move to a world where i just as an example if we can talk about all the stuff you are talking about if you have uh, ipv6 as an example applications or applications get better you don't need to worry about broadcast domains you don't need to worry about a whole bunch of other stuff if people can do the service discovery the modern way you don't have to worry about a whole bunch of headaches that you have to worry about today because you have got applications that assumed that everything was layer 2 which means i had to keep broadcast domain separate yeah the challenge i i'm at the supercomputing conference this week and i the number of conversations i've been in with research groups about people's frustration over the lack of adoption of ipv6 um it has amazed me i mean i i just had a conversation with a guy from nasa the other day who's on a a board looking at you know reasons why adoption is not at the rate they thought it would be. And so, you know, you you're right in what you're saying, but it that's a more of an academic view in the real world. Um, you know, certainly in the US, we're we're not seeing the IPv6 adoption, you know, we're seeing good movement, but we're not seeing the the rate that we thought we would. Oh, absolutely. I'm not trying to say that it is happening any faster. What I'm trying to say is just that people are much more it may be that in time, and I say that maybe that in time we may not need any network encapsulation that we'll go back to i mean a big reason why we sure. have a lot of the network virtualization is because of ipv4 and very in true. time that will change potentially that's all i was making very true ah uh, i mean mm-hmm. i think ipv6 the biggest problem i'm having with it today is it's still not finished every week <laughs> i go i follow an rss feed from the itf and every week there's another rfc on ipv6 uh, but that's like saying mpls is not finished you know there will yeah, always that, then be the, these aren't like invented. enhancements to ipv6 yeah, these are it's different it's different these it's, are fundamentally like oh 10 years in we're still thinking of things we should have thought of 10 years ago i think that will continue to happen yep. there'll be people who will keep inventing work <laughs> okay. Well, well, no, well, no, but I mean, I think what you're saying, Greg, is that I mean, we're we're essentially we're still working out the the shakes and 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 the the funky sounds in, in the car, right? It's not just about adding windshield wipers and automatic detecting, hen- you know, uh, bright lights and so forth. This is, you know, V6 is still being deployed in a way where we're running into race conditions and scenarios that we hadn't thought of before, and so it's still adapting. and that makes it very frustrating for someone trying to implement it and it makes it very frustrating for somebody who's trying to say you know put their career on the line and say yes we're ready to go for ipv6 when you find yep. out that the the incumbent vendors cisco juniper don't have full fledged ipv6 support it's inconsistently applied across their product suites or you've got to go and buy a software license to be able to use advanced ipv6 features yes yes exactly I, the, the 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 road the the speed bumps on the road to ipv6 are so enormously huge right now there's no way i would recommend to anybody to go to ipv6 unless you really really had to because the vendors are really don't want you to at this point in time as far as i can see but what i see is in the europe you're absolutely right and i you know independent of how surprising it is i think you know having now being in a startup uh, the inability for people to change the way their mind works is uh, continues to surprise me but independent of that i think where we i where i have started seeing more traction in all my time with uh, networking i am seeing more traction with ipv6 now because you have china russia europe wanting to build these large data centers 
they don't have the ip addresses and they don't they are not wedded we are in conversation with a very large data center in the in european space they have no ipv4 they're completely ipv6 they do ipv4 at the edge that's it yes but i'm very concerned about equilibrium yeah. i'm very concerned about getting to the point where enough people have moved off v4 that the pressure is released off v4 constriction and you end up with a situation where we're supporting v4 for 40 years because essentially it's all equaled out and there's no pressure anymore and people just tend to be lazy when it already works right yep agreed agreed i i was looking to say again to step back to where i started i was looking to say that if we go down the line of network virtualization a lot of network virtualization is driven by how applications are written and how the, what are the assumptions made by the applications. In time, some of them will change. As they change, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not even going to be, I don't know, maybe my lifetime. But in time, those <laughs> things will go. Who knows, right? I mean, things always take longer than uh, we predict it will take and, or rather we hope it will take. Yeah, no, and I was just saying... No, you bring up a good point, Dinesh. A lot of these things that we're doing are, are patches for problems that will go away if, if other technologies increase adoption. And that, that's something, exactly. we always, something we always have to be mindful of, that we are plugging holes that might not exist in five, ten years. Well, guys, we're coming up on an hour. I think we've done Geneve pretty well to death and had a lot of really interesting side conversations as well. Multiple layers of encryption, who's responsible for what, what's important to encrypt, was a great uh, side trail to go down. And uh, and this uh, latest one about the impact IPv6 would have. So, I mean, I think we can say, hey, you people that haven't adopted IPv6 yet, all these overlay encapsulations are your fault. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yes. That's oh. a nice uh, start. <laughs> Well, let's go around the table once, and uh, and if you guys would share with the audience how the folks can follow you, uh, if you're active on social media, Twitter or LinkedIn or a blog or a book you've written, anything you want to plug, uh, now's your chance. And uh, and let's start with John. So I'm uh, now at underscore Desmoden on Twitter, and uh, try to try to keep up um, you know my activities on there, and and I, I welcome anyone to follow, and I, I certainly look forward to any kind of uh, things that you disagree with. I love having those debates on 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 Twitter. Great. How about you, Dinesh? Uh, I'm on Twitter too, though I must say that uh, I subscribe to the philosophy that sometimes 140 characters is just too little no, uh, too, too little ability to nuance. So while you can follow me on Twitter, if you want to have meaningful conversations, uh, sending email to me at cumulusnetworks.com and having something like the Packet Pushers podcast is a far more uh, interesting ability to think about more meaningfully topics and discussions. But I am on Twitter at ddcumulus. Super, thank you. And uh, Jesse, how about you? Uh, I'm dark. I'm not on Twitter. Uh, but if you want to reach me, you can use the old school method. Uh, at Jesse at kernel.org is my email. Good I thought for you, you were Jesse. Say you had a phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, I'm Ethan Banks, at EC Banks on Twitter. Greg is at Ethereal Mind. And, uh, of course, you can keep up with us at PacketPushers.net. And thanks for listening to Packet Pushers today. And, again, you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That is a blog written by engineers from all over the world about what they're doing in real life on their networks. That's all at PacketPushers.net. And, by the way, if you want to blog with, uh, with Packet Pushers, you can do that. Send us an email, packetpushers at gmail.com, and let us know you'd like to, and we'll get you set up. 
By the way, you should know Packet Butchers has several different podcast channels these days, including the weekly and priority Q shows about network engineering, the network break show with news, views, and analysis, and data knots on data center architecture and silo busting. So please follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers, find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on iTunes. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.